Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. Scott Roeder is a crime scene reconstruction expert, having traveled the world investigating countless murders. You are here because you are interested in the truth. Buckle up and let's take a ride in the Crime Scene Time Machine. And welcome to Crime Scene Time Machine. I am your host, Scott, and with me today is Megan. Hi, guys. And today we're going to be talking about, I think, a very interesting case uh, that I've been working on for a couple of years now. It is an unsolved mystery, a true unsolved mystery. Um, uh, Megan, uh, as you know, we're going to be filming a show with Netflix uh, coming up here in the late summer on the uh, unsolved mystery regarding the double homicide in Rocky River, Ohio of uh, Carnell Sledge and Kate Brown, a couple of friends that were sitting on a park bench on a sunny, beautiful day, spring, uh, summer day in Cleveland, Ohio, um, just looking off into the water when someone still unknown to this day came up from behind them and shot them in the back of the head uh, and killed them. Um, really kind of a shocking case here in Rocky River, Ohio. One of the first murders in, I think, the last 30 years um, and an unsolved murder. So, you know, this was a case... You know, in my hometown that I was very interested in, and I wanted to donate my services, just generally speaking, for the families and possibly to augment any investigation uh, by the Metro Parks. Uh, the FBI is also involved. You know, we did put out a podcast previously about this, and we're going to highlight some of that material today and re release it, but we wanted to, you know, put a little bit. Um, of uh, perspective on it, you know, we're now in 2023. Uh, this murder happened in uh, 2019, and as of right now, Megan, there are no leads still in this case that have led to any kind of arrest. And um, you know, we're going to be taking a look at that a little bit, a little bit harder. Yeah, I think it'll be definitely a good idea to. Uh look at this case and try to see if there's any evidence that could have possibly been missed, any other connections that could be possibly made, and just to try to solve this for the families that are still dealing with the loss of their loved ones, and not knowing what happened to them is even worse than not knowing anything. Well, I think people want to know why, right? Um, you You know, we live in a world now where... There's a lot of murder that just doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked in other episodes about, you know, politicians being killed. And we're going to be doing an episode here in the future about, you know, some celebrities that have been killed. Matter of fact, I think we have an episode coming up in the, in the not-too-distant future, uh, everybody, about um, the murder of Marilyn Monroe, which will kind of dovetail with our cases that we've done about Bobby Kennedy and John F. Kennedy. 
Um, so we're going to do Marilyn Monroe in the future. That was by a request from one of our listeners in Connecticut. Uh, excellent uh, gentleman by the name of James Thomas has requested that we do a dive into the Marilyn Monroe uh, murder. He said that you know it seemed like just a very uh, a natural thing to do next. I agree. I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to dive into this and see what we can find and what we can connect deeper and figure out some unsolved questions well i mean you know it goes into the i think the um the romantic part of what america used to be you know that's to me you know the kennedy era was probably i think the last time people in this country really had hope for, that something was going to change, that we were not going to be at this constant state of war. Um, so when the Kennedys were brought down by an assassin's gun, when Martin Luther King was brought down by an assassin's gun, um, the world kind of changed after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Marilyn Monroe is a, a casualty, I think, of getting in the way of the military industrial complex and um you know the one rule uh when you're involved in you know war uh or politics or even gangstering you know i did a documentary uh just as a little side shoot i did a documentary in 2008 uh called kaboom the battle for collinwood and it was about 1970s cleveland ohio and irish american gangster danny green mm-hmm. And uh, I did it for the Waterloo, Waterloo uh, Street Art Festival. Uh, it was a 45-minute-long movie. Unfortunately, folks out there, we lost all the original footage due to a computer malfunction. So there's no way that we can bring it back and share with everybody. But one of the things that I learned uh, and I kind of respected about investigating Cleveland and the mafia in the 70s and 60s was that they had a rule not to hurt women or innocent people or children. Um, and the, the whole idea was if you weren't messing around with their business, you know, um, the vending machines or garbage collection or running the numbers, you were pretty much safe. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, if you lived in the community with Danny Green, this horrible gangster, you were safe. Yeah, you're protected from it. Yeah, if if you if somebody stole your lawnmower, Danny Green would get you another lawnmower. If you didn't have enough money for Christmas presents for your children, Danny Green would give you turkey and presents to go to Higby's and money so that your family would have a good Christmas. They protected the community, um, even though they warred with each other and they blew each other up with car bombs and all that. Um, it's the... I don't know. There was a respect for innocent people. And uh, Marilyn Monroe, it's just a dovetail back to Marilyn Monroe, she was another innocent victim of the possibly the military-industrial complex. Um, but we're going to get into that later. Um, so we're going to play for you here, uh, I think, a couple of clips. Uh, the first clip is going to be an interview that I did with um, um, Darlene Sledge. Uh, Darlene Sledge is... Um, Carnell's mother, uh, wonderful, wonderful lady. Her and I share the same birthday. Uh, we became friends uh, over the course of this investigation. I met with her several times, and we'll probably give her a call again uh, here to um, you know see how she's doing. 
Uh, but we're going to play that for you now. Um, so take a listen uh, to the mother of Carnell Sledge, one of the two, uh, murdered in Rocky River on June 5th, 2019. And, um, you know, then we'll, we'll come right back after that. And I'm thinking, well, should he be asking me that? And, and you know, it's going to be on TV, but I guess he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you a question. Do you have a few minutes now, Darlene? Yes. Okay, good. So let me ask you um, about about Carnell Sledge. He was your son. How many other children did you have or do you have? I have one other son, and that's son. Terrence. Terrence. And, and yeah. how is he older brother to, to Nell or...? He's his younger brother. Younger brother. Yeah. And how much younger, younger is Terrence than now? Say that again. I'm sorry. There was a. Oh, I'm sorry. How much younger is um, Terrence than now? Oh, he's he's three years under now. Oh, okay. All right. Great. Yeah. And were they yeah. close? Yeah, they were close. Yeah. And Nell always pushed Terrence to be better, and he he loved his brother. They loved each other. I mean, I told it was just the two of them. I told him, I said, love each other and be there for each other because. You've all each other got. <laughs> yeah, and, and you do sound like such a loving mother, and and, and of course, Carnell, you, you you referred to him as Nell. That was his name to you. In yeah, the family. yeah, yeah. He was Nell to, to family. Yeah, and the yeah. last time, and you, I mean, you guys were close. You guys talked almost every day on the phone. Yeah, we we were close. Yeah, he would call. We talked during the sports games. If I was um, if I wasn't in, in tune to a game coming on, he would call me, "Mom, you know such and such is playing." Especially basketball. I mm-hmm. mean, we were we were we were fans. He would get us tickets to the uh, Cavaliers games, and he just know we loved the Cavs, and, and he loved them just as much as we did. Yeah, and yeah. and Nell was never uh, he never got into trouble as a kid or anything like that, did he? Or I mean, just like obviously we all have points in our lives where things get rocky, but but you and Nell. You guys were really close, and he had a good job. He had a good career. Tell me about like what his life trajectory was. Like, where did if this horrible murder didn't happen, you know, what was Nell's plans for the future? Like, what was his what was going on in his life that he was looking forward to? He was looking forward to um, working with the kids, but he was going to take it one step further. He wanted to purchase vans uh, with his sledges, helping hands. Um, Vans for the kids to be transported to their um, basketball games, their baseball games, take the load off the parents. He was and, really getting into helping out the kids one step further. And he was a school teacher. No, he was actually a youth leader. Okay, okay. So yeah. he and that was that through the church or through a school or through a a, a, a religious school or how, how, what was that all about? Well, he was a youth leader at Applewood. Applewood Services. Okay. Tell me about and Applewood. That, that was to help disadvantaged children? Yes, yes. Um, he worked there. Um, I think that might have, may have been his second job. Oh, he loved working there. He loved working with kids. And it's unfortunate that he didn't have any biological kids, but he, he put all of his all in all in the kids that he worked with, and he also worked with the kids at Empower Sports. He was their program program manager there. Mm-hmm. And, and I would go to some of their, their basketball games and went watch them play. And he just, he was just great with those kids. He was patient. He never got upset. He was, he was just a calm, mellow person. Yeah. Well, he had that big, big smile. Every oh, picture. Yes. Yeah, Nell would smile and light up a room. 
Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and to go back just a little bit, so, you know, we were talking a, a little bit, getting some background on it, and um, the last time, well, the last Christmas you spent with him was was in Christmas of uh, 2018. And what was the last time, when was the last time you saw Nell in person prior to him being killed? Well, my birthday was May 26th. Okay. Um, and he had spent the holiday with us. My birthday usually falls around Memorial Day. Yeah, now I know and why you and I get along so well, Darlene. My birthday is May 25th. Are you serious? Yeah, we're both Geminis. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Isn't that something? It is something, that's, yeah. That's uh, our link. Yes, that it is. is. It. Yeah, it is. We are oh, linked, so, it, we are so linked in the We are linked in the cosmos. Yes, uh, yes. So your birthday was May 20... Your birthday is May 26. It's so May 26. May 26 yeah. of and, 2019. Um, he, he was... The, that, and that day, my birthday... That year, on the, the 19, 2019, my birthday was on the holiday. So he was mm, here. Yeah. And um, um, we were... We were cooking, and my mom was here, his grandma, and both of his aunts was here. And we just, we had dinner together, we had birthday cake, and he he spent the day with us, and then he said he was coming back the next day because he's going to help his dad do something. Mm-hmm. He came back that following Monday, he helped his dad, and then he said he was going to come back by that Wednesday because he had some um some tools that he needed to pick up right. that his dad was using. So he was here which was just different. He was here like three days in a row. Mm-hmm. And that Wednesday was the last time I saw him. And, um, you know, he, he left. He said, well, Mom, I'm, I'm on vacation, and I'll be going going to Las Vegas with um, his brother and his cousin. They're going to a bachelor party, so I'll probably I'll see you when I get back. And um, When were they scheduled Wednesday, to leave for that bachelor that party? The, week, the, week, the weekend, he went to my mom's house that Saturday. Mm-hmm. So I spoke with him briefly over the phone that Saturday, but I didn't see him in person. He was at my mom's that Saturday. She had him that day. And um, that Tuesday is when he was murdered. What day was he scheduled to go to Vegas? Thursday. On the, let's see, he was murdered June 4th. He was supposed to on the 6th, June 6th, he was going to Las Vegas for a bachelor party oh, that I Thursday. Had no, I had no so idea So he had already that. purchased his ticket and was all set to go. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. That's the first time I've heard of that. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, um, that's, 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 that's really sad. So now, on the day of his death, on, on June the 4th, that Tuesday, uh-huh. it was a beautiful sunny day. and He was actually supposed to... To, to meet with you guys to have dinner that day, right? Yeah, at my mom's. Yeah. In fact, that Saturday, um, he was at my mom's, and she mentioned to me that Neil wants to come by on Tuesday and we have a family dinner, which was not unusual. We did it at the spur of the moment anytime. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, okay, well, well, we'll see. I'll see you guys on Tuesday. And um, Neil was finishing up, and he was on his way out to, um, to Akron to spend the, spend the day with his cousins. So, um, Mom, we were set that Tuesday to have dinner at Mom's, and um, Neil said he would be there between 5 and 5.30. Well, 5 and 5.30 came and um, no nails. So my mom, she she calls him and no answer. And she texts him and he didn't text back. 
So we thought that was kind of unusual, but didn't make too much of it. Well, then the seven o'clock hour comes around and we're still not hearing anything and he's not texting mom back. So mom starts panicking. So my husband tells her, oh, don't worry. He'll, he'll, he'll be here. They're like salmon and rice. It's one of his favorite meals. Yeah. Well, we didn't hear from Neil um, for the rest of the evening, which was highly unusual. He would have at least texted and said, well, I'm going to make a stop here. Um, yeah. I'll be there shortly. We heard nothing. And he planned this dinner, so he would have been there. So something had to have happened um, where he wasn't able to call. And even if he was with a friend, he would have texted. So by him going to the park to meet Kate, I think that was like a spur-of-the-moment thing that he didn't plan plan to be there long if indeed he went there. Right. But we, we didn't know that, though. We were thinking, well, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe he had car trouble, but still he would have texted. Maybe a friend called him, but still he would have texted. So my mom, she's um, she's worried, or oh, something's not right, something, well, we, we, I went on to bed early that night. I don't know, I just felt uneasy. I just felt strange. So I went to, I didn't even watch the 10 o'clock news, which I usually do. Yeah. I went to bed about nine o'clock that night. And I eventually dozed off. And when I woke up, it was 2 a.m. My husband Carl was waking me up. He said, Dar, wake up, the police are here. The police are here. What's, what's wrong? You know, come on, get up, get your robe. So I got up and I come out of my bedroom and I'm walking down the hall and I noticed the detective. There's two detectives and a, and a female, maybe three detectives. And I noticed in his hand, he had a AAA book. So I'm looking at him like, okay, what's wrong? Something, something's wrong. So I go into the kitchen and we sit down. And he pulls out the AAA book and he shows us pictures of Nell. This is your son. She said, yeah, this, this is, this is Nell. This is our son, Nell. And I'm thinking, okay, what's wrong? So then he shows me a picture of Kate. Uh, do you know this young lady? No, I don't know who, who is this young lady. So then he tells us that uh, your son was murdered in the Metro Park tonight. And I'm like, no, I didn't just hear what he just said. Mm. And my husband says, no, no, you got, you got, you sure you got the right guy? And he says it again. My, I put my head down. I didn't raise my head up again until I was going back to my bedroom. Mm. Everything he said after then was just like a blur. Mm. Everything just stopped. And I walked back to my bedroom and I closed my door and I just climbed into my bed and I just cried and cried. And it seemed like within an hour, the sun was coming up, but it wasn't, it was hours later. The sun came up and then the sun went down again. It was a cloudy, rainy day for the rest of the day. And nothing has been the same since that moment. I'm so sorry. It was awful. I couldn't, but I said, no, this has to be a dream, but I'm not waking up. I can't wake up. I just couldn't believe it. Who would want to hurt my baby? Yeah. He really had no enemies of any kind. Uh, he was involved no, in the community. No, Everybody loved him. if you go back and look him. at his Facebook post, yeah. I, was, I felt it warmed my heart after everything was over and I went back and I read all of the posts that all the good things they said about my baby. Yeah. And they were true. Nell wouldn't hurt anyone. And I said this, um, to my husband, had the, whoever did this to Nell, had they taken the moment to talk with him, they wouldn't have done it. He would have been able to talk him out of it, but this was a cowardly act. Someone walked up and shot him in the head. Didn't give him a chance. Yeah. 
Well, Darlene, I, I really want to tell you that uh, all the efforts that everybody's going to right now to bring more attention uh, to this, you're really helping so much because people need to care about who we lost and who the world lost and uh Nell was a big gift to this world and and I think the best that way that you know we can try to honor that is to keep his memory alive by you know honoring all the great things that he did in his life but at the same time we need tips from anybody that knows anything about this case June the 4th 2019 in Fairview Park Ohio in the Metro Park system uh, and uh, hopefully we get some get some tips that lead to um, to an arrest or a suspect or something but I, I really want to thank you for sharing that story with, with me Darlene I, I know that wasn't easy and, and I really appreciate it and I appreciate you um, you are really doing an awesome job at trying to bring some closure well let's just hope you know, we're moving a little closer in that direction. Um, all right, thank you so much. And okay, we're back. And uh, so now, just to stay with the format a little bit, let's take a listen to an interview that I did with investigative news reporter Ed Gallick from Fox 8 regarding his investigation of the unsolved double homicide of Carnell Sledge and Kate Brown. Uh, take a listen, and we'll be right back. Hey there. Good afternoon, Ed. How you doing? All right. Excellent. So uh, I figured today we're going to do like a deep dive on kind of a behind the scenes story on the, you know, the story that you've been investigating since June 4th, 2019. So uh, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so, um, June the 4th, 2019, you know, the thing about this case that kills me and has always killed me, other than it being less than a mile from where I lay my head every night, is the idea that in the middle of the day at 5 o'clock in this area that has absolutely zero crime, this thing gets away with this little caper, this event, uh, with absolutely... To this, at this point, no witnesses or statements or evidence that has led to uh, an arrest. I mean, you've been following this case since the day it happened. What were your initial thoughts when this thing broke? Well, I think everybody saw it when it initially happened as, all right, this will get solved. It's horrific, and it's in an area we didn't expect, but these things sometimes happen, and there's probably an explanation for it. And here we are two years later going... We've never gotten an explanation for it. So I think that's why recently we decided to take another look at it. We decided to call you and say, let's take a look at this from some other angles and find out what's missing, what's not been answered. Because when it first happened, again, nobody really expected it. But everybody said, well, there has to be something to it that's going to be explained. And after two years of absolutely nothing but... The police saying, please give us tips. I think the community and certainly the families are saying, we have to do better than that. We have to shake this loose somehow. 
Now, Ed, I have a question for you because, you know, not all of our listeners here are going to be from Cleveland, Ohio, or the west side of Cleveland, or Ohio, and in, in many instances, not even in the United States. So can you help set the scene of why this double homicide is so unique for this particular area to somebody sitting in Glasgow, Scotland? Why is this so unique? Yeah, that's a great question, and that really cuts to the heart of the whole mystery. You have a park heavily used by a lot of people. It's a great little getaway within the city where you have a stream running through. You have running trails, walking trails. And this is an upper middle class suburban recreation area where people should be free to walk their babies there's very little crime or, you know, based on the one investigation that you did, maybe there's more crime there than the law enforcement really lets on. Well, and that's a great point as well. You know, you do have people walking their babies there. You do have women walking alone or jogging at odd hours because everybody feels safe there. And this is one of those little oasises within the city. And... You never hear of anything going on there, but certainly after this happens, you get two people killed, an unsolved mystery. We decided to take a look at, well, what else is going on there? Anything? And we did find there were some other incidents with guns, with people with guns that had never been reported by the Metro Parks Police. And some of it was a little odd. Some people didn't make a report right then when it happened, and you have that kind of thing with all kinds of crime, really, but yet it gave us a glimpse that this wasn't an entirely, completely safe area. Hey, so Ed. Hey, Ed. Ed, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a one, two, three break. Uh, but um, your phone is a little bit. Ch- you you at one point your phone was really really great. So I don't know if there's any way that you can just make sure we're getting a better. You've got such a great voice. I don't want to dilute it. Um, okay, yeah. Is this, is this any better? I mean, I moved across the room. And, uh, yeah, wherever you were, like, 30 seconds ago, there was, it was perfect. <laughs> okay. And that, I don't know if you were on speaker or if you're holding it up to your ear. Uh, if you're on speaker, just put it down on the table in front of you and then just don't, don't touch it and just kind of talk into it really closely. Um, okay. That usually gives, us the, gives me the best audio for how I'm going to record it or I'm getting it recorded. All right, so give me a test one. Okay, a test one, two, three, four, five, six. That's seven, that's eight, great nine, right nine. there. Yeah, that's perfect right there. Okay, so I'm gonna cut it in. There's my edit, my hard edit, and we're back now. So we were talking about. Let me transition into it better. Um, so in your thirty years, twenty plus years of being an investigative news reporter in Cleveland, Ohio covering the west side of Cleveland, particularly the crime beat. Um, is, is this something that uh, you have an initial expectation? This is going to be solved pretty quickly. Yeah, I think most people expected that. Two people killed in an area where you don't have a lot of crime. Everybody assumed, well, that had to have something to do with one person or the other. Or if it was something, quote-unquote, random, that somebody would have left some clues, and this wouldn't take that long. 
you had the Metro Parks saying, we're working with the FBI. And certainly when you hear the FBI is involved, you think, okay, nobody's getting away with this. And here we are two years later going, it's never happened. Right. So I had, um, so, so let's bring into the involvement of how we started to kind of work into this. And, and I want to give you a lot of credit because, you know, in a lot of these cold case investigations that I get involved in, typically the catalyst is a persistent journalist who brings up the story. It's very similar to this case that I just wrapped up with in um, uh, uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, it was the journalist, Ross Colhart, and his curiosity about the nature of the investigation that prompted my involvement, that prompted public interest, that prompted, you know, that was the catalyst. That was the first domino. So you were that domino in this particular case here because you're the journalist that was, that really, you've never given up on this case. And that's kind of how we got involved on it, working together. Um, so I give you credit for being a, 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 one of the hometown heroes you know, you're not just, ah, oh, they got gallicked, <laughs> as, they, as they referred to. I, by the way, I absolutely love that story with um, the, the, the local morning sports radio show, 92.3 The Fan, uh, Ken Carmen oh, yeah. and, uh, Ken Carmen and uh, uh, Anthony Lima. Really funny show. I'll give them a free plug right now. You could probably hear them on odyssey.com, 92.3. Uh, <laughs> same where, same place you can get this Evidence Room podcast, right? Constant promotion. Uh, but you're not just the gallict, man. You, you actually, you, have, you love the city. I mean, you've been here for a long time. This is your home. You care about this too, right? Well, that's right. My wife's a reporter as well. We're reporters at the same station. And actually, that's how this whole process came about as far as what we're working on right now. The boss came to us and said, hey, why don't we take a look at some of the cold cases? So Peggy and I looked at each other, and this was one of the first that came to mind because in the city of Cleveland and in Northeast Ohio, this is one that means something to everyone. And so this is one we decided to take a hard look at, and we decided to look at it in a way that said, all right, we have to do better than just getting the police to say, yep, we still need tips or you can run, but you can't hide. Right. You know, those, those rote kinds of comments. We said, we've got to do better than that. We've got to find some way to move this a little bit. Right. And I think we did. You know, um, we've got now, and uh, I think this will be breaking news. Your, this will be your live on-air podcast update, Ed, of, <laughs> of, of, of developing events in, in, the, um, in, the, in the life of this case. Um, you know, so as, as I've been looking through, you know, kind of reevaluating, uh, our methodology, right? So the methodology that I've looked at, and, and I, I think I addressed it earlier in this podcast in, in the first segment was, you know, looking at this case in kind of a broad investigation category, you know, I've got, you've got several different buckets, right? You've got the random crime that could be related to, um, you know, uh, some kind of crime of opportunity, like a robbery. Uh, you've got a uh, crime of passion, uh, which I talk about extensively previously, where you and I have done investigations to look at the credibility of certain ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends, and who is coming in and out of the lives of these people, looking at that part of it. 
And then we looked at it from the standpoint of, okay, this is a mixed race kind of couple, friendship, you know, a couple of people. Um, sure. Maybe there could be a race component to it, right? And then we looked at it uh, from a lot of different components. And the one thing I think I gave my office, uh, my staff today, Penny Riley, my talented illustrator from Manchester, England. And uh, by the way, I love it when she calls me because she, uh, you know, I answer the phone. I say, hello. And she goes, you okay? I love the accent. <laughs> I, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? But that's just how she says hello. Are you okay? <laughs> it, oh, I gotta love it. It's just adorable. And then, of course, you know, my uh, art director, Patrick Mooney, who's been with me a long time. And so I was briefing them this morning after kind of my, you know, evaluation of it. The ESPN headlight in the background. So I'll say that again. So I briefed Penny and Patrick today on kind of the updates on, you know, what I was thinking. And, you know, we've gone down that road investigating the anonymous tip that led us to a suspicion about a particular individual or a particular kind of individual that might be related to this case, particularly ex-girlfriends of Carnell Sledge. Uh, not any one particular person, or just kind of that category, right? And then we looked right. at the other category of, you know, potential ex-boyfriends, right, of Kate. It's another category, not specific to any individual, but it's a category of investigation. And we've been spending a lot of time on this, but then I realized, and the story that you sent to me earlier, and that's part of this podcast, that's actually the part that's going to proceed, that's going to bump us, uh, okay. uh, lead us into this is your investigation about unreported violent gun crime in the park. I don't know how deeply we've looked into the category of, was this a robbery? Um, uh, you, know, you know, because I think from the inventory of the personal possessions that we have information to, you know, there were credit cards and things like that. Um, there, there was, um, I mean, we, we talked about not being a lot of cash, but that really has been kind of our least area of emphasis so far. But after re-listening to your story previously, I, I wonder if, if uh, you know, maybe that's a possibility. There could be, this could be related to a violent crime. I mean, we, we've narrowed well, down, I think, some things, but I think all things are still possible. And that's, you know, the, the police are still saying that as well. They're leaving it open in that broad way. And I even asked them at one point, well, what have you ruled out? And they said, we've ruled out nothing. And I thought to myself, after two years, how can you not have ruled out something? But to your point, when you do see that there have been some other gun crimes in that park, that specific park, and I know, Scott, you found some gang graffiti yeah. by there. Mm -hmm. And so you start to say, well, maybe there could be some other things that transpire here that seem to be random that a target was picked out just because it was a target of convenience. Maybe somebody was doing something at somebody else's urging and you start to say, well, this could happen. That could be, that could be a factor as well. You know, you this, know. this, this reminds me of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, everybody's always afraid of like the big brother effect, right? You know, like there's a, there's a, there's a, we don't want to be watched too closely, but we want to be watched enough to be safe, right? Uh, like, don't read my text messages, but you know, you could, all right, I got to just, just ESPN. People want to be 
watched to the point where they're safe, but they don't necessarily want to be watched that closely. And I kept thinking about something that the Chief Nolan had said, and uh, responding to a question that you had asked uh, at a press conference regarding um, cameras uh, that might be available in the area, and where were those cameras, and what did they show? And she said specifically that some footage that's helpful to the investigation was captured on one of the cameras. I feel like we need to know where that specific camera is because it's fine if we give up the location of that one specific camera because you could always move it to something else, you know, just adjacent to there. It's not like they're giving away a, a trade secret by saying where this camera was. I, I want to see what's on the camera. You know what I mean? Well, there are two questions there. I go, why haven't we seen that what could be helpful to the investigation? If you say you have nothing, well, then show us what you do have that might help us to move this along. And maybe that little piece of video could. <laughs> at, this, at the same point about the cameras, you know, cameras are probably most effective as a deterrent. I think police would rather have cameras up so that the bad guy doesn't do something as opposed to relying on what the camera did pick up to help solve a case after it's already happened. Right. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, but you know, I, I would hate to live in a world or, or maybe it's just the reality of the world that we live in. And, and, you know, not to get too heady, but, you know, I believe that we're living in a world that is uh, demonstrating some symptoms of being sick. Uh, not just environmentally, uh, socially, politically, uh, are, we have a collective conscious in this world that we're living on right now that kind of ferments this unrest and this distrust of fellow man and, and kind of ferments. They've actually, I saw a statistic, um, uh, just today, uh, by a very, you know, middle of the road news uh, service, uh, that crime is up. 70% in most urban areas since the pandemic kind of went into like its deepest part. And it's continuing. Especially violent crime. Yeah, violent crime, gun crime. And it's continuing to come up as we speak right at this moment, talking to you on May the 5th of 2021. Um, so if this is something that we are going to have to deal with long term moving forward, you know, is it feasible to say, okay, let's invest Let's take a million dollars out of the out of the Metro Park budget, and instead of paving some of these uh, baseball fields, or instead of making a a horse barn, which all are all things that we need, by the way, because that's what makes the park fun. Uh, but maybe we need to take a portion of that budget and 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 put a bunch of eyes in the sky along the walk paths, randomly, and then change them systematically so that you know bad guys you know, and put them up high enough in the trees that they can't be tampered with. Um, you know, maybe that's something moving forward that we need to do as a community to make our park safe. And you wonder how much of that was done, even on a small scare, scale, if at all, after this crime, because we still have not gotten any specifics about what new security measures have been taken or are now in place as a result of this right. horrific crime. And the public, I think, would like to know. Well, maybe they wouldn't like to know that their camera is on that big tree above the big log in the river, but they'd like to know, hey, we've added 
20 cameras within 200 yards of that or something like that. I think that is an amazingly great idea. Just, I think it works exactly the way you just said. Telling the public, listen, we're taking a million, this, this case shaked us to the core, and I don't know what the Metro Park's budget is, but I'm assuming it's tens of millions of dollars. Um, I, I mean, you know, they, they, they get revenue, right? Uh, right? All those fishing licenses pay for something, right? Um, so, um, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is let's take a portion of that budget, whatever that budget is, and, and, and let's make some, let's make this park safe with high technology, with eyes in the sky, not to evade, not to invade anybody's privacy. They can be activated by the sound of a gunshot wound or by the sound of a gunshot going off. When I was in Camden, New Jersey, one of the most dangerous cities in all of America, they had, under President Obama, installed the most high-tech crime center in all of the United States. And it, the, the center of it was audio and geo-tracking. Because, and it was a brilliant idea. The, and the idea was, if we put up all of these basically open telephone lines that kind of like an electric car when there's no sound it's not recording but when it when a gunshot goes off it records 10 seconds before 10 seconds after the gunshot and it gives you a geo coordinate so you know exactly from your command center where that gun was discharged that's incredible and that is a system that exists in Camden New Jersey we could put some sort of that kind, because that way it's not capturing video, because having video cameras everywhere is very difficult. But in a place like the Metro Parks where it's quiet and you can tune out the ambient sound, just like taking professional sound in a sound room, you're like, oh, we're going to get room tone, all right? Or, and then we're only going to record, record things over X decibel level, which would be like the minimum... Uh, for either a voice distress or for uh, a gunshot or something, whatever. You can cal calibrate it, you know. So anyway, we've now solved the crime problem in the Metro Parks. Isn't that right, Ed? Well, you certainly could <laughs> do it that way because, you know, even the city of Cleveland is even doing something on a smaller scale where yeah. they are testing out technology that isn't with a camera, but it picks up gunfire and that goes into dispatch and dispatch then knows there were just six gunshots at 93rd and Kinsman. Right. So they can send an officer there. So that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't even need the camera. You just need the location. Right. The camera certainly helped because, yeah. you know, you want to see what happened, but if you can't do it in that form, there's a way to do it, you know, a step lower. But, but then that begs the question and you know, this is a long format show. <laughs> So, but that, that begs the question, in my mind, is that technology chip away at our freedoms, or is that a fair trade? You're going to hear people say that chips away at freedoms, but I also point out this, you know, just a couple of years ago, right before the Republican National Convention was held in Cleveland, the main arena in town put in a whole new camera system so that nothing moved without being 
seen on camera. Mm -hmm. So when you go to a basketball game or a hockey game or any other event there, you can't pretty much lift your left arm without it being on camera. And you know that when you go there to see the event. So, right. I don't know. We do it. <laughs> we go along with it in many other walks of life. So. Right. And that's on the fine print on the back of the ticket. Every move, every, please, by entering these doors, please understand everything you do, including going to the bathroom, will be recorded. Right. <laughs> Not quite that far, but almost. Right, right, yeah. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, where does it end, Ed? I don't know. Right. Uh, but, I mean, back to this case. So, um, I really felt that I've benefited, and, and we're being a little bit light here, and, I don't, and it's good to be light because, listen, we're all still living our lives, and... And, and doing all the things that we have to do, and we just try to honor the victims, you know, we're not here to mourn. We're, we're here to investigate, and we're here to share other people that are mourning. So, you know, if we get a little bit light, it's not out of disrespect. It's just out of how we cope, I think, sometimes when you deal with death every single day, you know. Um, right. So just to give people a little bit of perspective on that. Um, and, and let's face it, anybody who's looking at this case, by all accounts... The victims in this case didn't deserve this. Oh, God, no. They are good people. Yes. They didn't have red flags in their mm -hmm. lives. And they both they, come from beautiful they, families. Right. There was nothing that said target, danger, something bad's going to happen to one of them. Yeah. Certainly there's going to be something that might come out that is something about their life we don't know about. But right. that's not, there's nothing to indicate any kind of any kind of putting themselves in danger. Right. Well, you know, uh, I always make this analogy on some other cases, uh, maybe not always, but when appropriate. You know, a guy robs a bank, and as he's walking home from robbing the bank, he gets shot and killed. And people are like, oh, you know. But and the, I'm not surprised, right? But, like, people, yeah, and I make the analogy of, well, it's not like uh, it was a, a, somebody walking home from church carrying a gallon of milk that gets shot. Well, guess what? In this case, it is. Right. It is somebody walking home from church. It is somebody walking home from getting a gallon of milk. It's two friends that have known each other for 10 years, basically in their backyards, enjoying a chat on a beautiful day by a beautiful park, you know, enjoying life, living life, loving each other and loving life. And nothing that they did led to this, but somebody knows about this. And, and I think that's what the podcast is about. That's what your news investigation is about. That's what the Cleveland Metro Parks are all about. And, um, you know, I, I think um, I, we just got to put that love out there because it's because these people, people love these people that were doing this story, Right. And again, it gets back to the fact many people were there that day, yeah. driving through the park, walking their dogs, even right there where it happened, that little parking lot that was right there by the bench where it happened, that was full. So it really does get back to somebody has to know something, somebody has to have seen something, somebody has to have heard something, because this didn't happen in some field somewhere yeah. where there was nobody around. You know, Ed, I want to know what that roofer said. Right. You know, and then there's one car in that little tiny parking lot 
that's unaccounted for, uh, according to my review of the evidence. Yeah, and, you know, again, at two years in, we can't necessarily expect the police to show their hand on every piece of evidence right. they have. But I think it would be in the public interest for the investigators to open themselves a little bit to say, here are a few things we haven't told you yet. Maybe this now will jog something loose. That's well, really what we're you know, for. it's almost, you know, listen, the world is a bunch of detectives now, you know, and um, so, for example, if if they were to release, OK, here's the statement of the roofer. He said this. We checked it out. It was credible. Here's the statement of the two kayakers. We checked it out. It's credible. Here's what the physical evidence shows. There's three shell casings in the water. It was a 22 caliber gun. Nell was shot in the back of the head twice. Kate was shot in the back of the head once. She was found in the river this far away. And we're going to show you that, people. I put together a reconstruction, and we're going to be airing that uh, with Fox 8 News. I'm also going to have a link to that story here on this podcast. So everything that we've been talking about for this last hour... You guys are going to be able to see it, share it, download it, and circulate it because somebody knows something. And you can call me at the evidence room. You can call Ed Gallick at Fox News. You can call the FBI. You can call the Cleveland Metro Parks uh, Division. Um, you can call Crime Stoppers or call 911. There's a $100,000 reward for tips leading to this. You know, so somebody knows something. Um, Ed, I think we're hitting our time zone here. I know you have a hard out in uh, two minutes to make your uh, evening news show, which I'm a huge <laughs> fan of, Fox 8 News. Uh, it's a great show. It's the best Cleveland afternoon show. Ed Gallick is absolutely the toughest guy. And for all you bad guys out there, just beware. You don't want to get gallicked. <laughs> and if you've got forbid, you don't want to get double gallicked. <laughs> That's right. You don't, don't want my wife showing up knocking on the door. Me, right? <laughs> hey, Ed, thank you so much. You are the best guest, and you're a great uh, collaborator uh, in the search for truth. And, uh, I appreciate your effort because, you know, it's your passion that also helps to move this forward and let people know, listen, this thing isn't going away because we're not going to forget it. Right. And now this podcast and your show, uh, it's going to be out there. And, uh, you know, hopefully somebody sees something and say something. hundred grand for you, folks. Anyway, thank you, Ed. I'll see you, Ed. See you, see you tonight at 10 on the news, buddy. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. And now for a throwback to my interview with Ross Colhart on UFOs and his book In Plain Sight. I think a lot of people are missing this. And, and this is one of the big revelation points for me. It is now official. The United States government has admitted that these objects are real. Whatever they are, they can't explain them, but they're real. They're being tracked on radar. They're being picked up on multiple sensor systems, at FLIR imaging systems. And if you're interested, please go to patreon.com forward slash crime scene time machine and give anything you like. All of the proceeds are going to go right back into the show for research. Thanks for your patronage. And for the rest of the interview with Ross Colhart, 
go back to our archives and you can listen to them all. We've got a lot of great episodes. We love you to go back and listen to every single one of them and listen to what you think. Thanks. And now back to this program. Well, it's been nearly two years since two friends, Kate Brown and Carnell Sledge, were shot to death sitting on a bench in the Metro Park's Rocky River Reservation. The crime remains unsolved and something Brown's family doesn't want the public to forget. As Mark Namick reports, their efforts to ask for help were shut down by the Metro Parks. We have to come out here and do this again because the Metro Parks are unwilling to aid us in this call for help to the public. The signs were a fixture along the roadway for months after the murders. First asking joggers, bikers and drivers if they saw anything. Later, the signs highlighted the $100,000 reward, most of it from the family. The Metro Parks took the signs down last April. These aren't signs for a five-year-old's birthday party. These aren't signs for a graduation party. These are signs that are down here trying to, to stir up tips, maybe that one lead that would lead to getting this solved. With leads gone cold and the anniversary of the murders approaching, the family printed new signs and placed them along the road last Tuesday. The Metro Parks immediately removed them. I didn't receive a call. In fact, you're, you're the one that told me this is the only power my family has in this investigation. The, the only way we can help are little things like this. If I were the Metro Parks, I'd have my own people making signs up. Metro Park people are putting them down here to get this solved because mm -hmm. this... This can't go on. You just can't walk away and turn your cheek and pretend it's going to go away. Because let me tell you something, it's not going to go away. As long as we're still here, we're, we're going to do everything we can to keep this in the public eye. We all need the help of the public to reach the conclusion. And the conclusion is going to be someone talks about this. Someone spoke about it at a bar, in a bar. Somebody talked or bragged about it to a buddy. And we need those people to come forward. The family of Cape Brown hopes the Metro Parks will reconsider and allow them to put the signs back. They say it's about more than just reminding people what happened here, but about solving a crime and making the parks safer for everyone. I'm Mark Namick, 3 News. Okay, so um, uh, that was one of many news reports that have run uh, over the last several years. And... Um, you know, what do you think about that, Megan? I mean, the Metro Parks were taking down the family's signs um, asking for help. I don't think that's right. Maybe it's something to do with the Metro Parks that they only have specific places that they can hang them up. Like they don't want them destroying nature since it is a reserve for, you know, the environment. But, you know, they're trying to find what happened to their loved ones? Wouldn't you want all of the support and possible information to be out, even for passerbyers just to see it and keep it in their memory? Yeah. So they can continue to go on, and if they overhear something, then they can call the police and tell them, listen, I heard so-and-so say this, this, and this. But if they don't know that there's even a case going on, how are they supposed to look into figuring out who did these murders. Yeah, I mean, we live in a world where news is on a 24-hour cycle, and it's very easy to forget uh, important things, you know, um, because you're just moving on to the whatever the next thing is. I mean, for example, today on our podcast, we were going to, we had a bunch of things that we were going to talk about, and we threw them all away mm -hmm. because, you know, by the time I wrote the script of what we were going to talk about, 
we've already moved on to other things in life in just the two days that I wrote the script to the time we did the podcast. So, um, you know, it's important, like the family said, um, that there's signs out there. And this podcast is a sign, right? Mm -hmm. This is a big sign out there uh, for all of our listeners. Um, if you know something, send us an email. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, know something, call the FBI. Call the Rocky River Metro Parks. Call the Fairview Police Department and give somebody your tip. Whoever you feel comfortable with. Call me crime if you want stoppers. to. Call yeah. Crime Stoppers. Go to um, Crime Scene Time Machine. Send me an email at rotorevidence at iCloud.com. We'll follow up on it. Give it to the appropriate people. You know, we've done a uh, 3D model animation of what this would have looked like uh, from there. I've been down to the scene um, and uh, I walk through the entire scene of how the people could have gotten in without being seen, the killer, mm -hmm. and how they could have gotten out without being seen. Um, and matter of fact, we're going to play you that audio now from my scene visit down to the crime scene uh, and my walkthrough. And take a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Dexter here. We are at the scene of the unsolved murder of Carnell Sledge and Kate Brown. Right there is the bench that they were killed on. Um, you'll notice that this bench is very close, and we'll go up there and take a picture of it, but this bench is very close now to the edge, whereas three years ago when this happened, there was probably another three feet in front of the bench before you had um, the down drip. And that's natural because in Cleveland, Ohio, as you can see, it's made out of shale rock. Those are the kind of rocks that you can skip stones with, but these same shale rocks is the same sediment that creates the underneath side of uh, all the terraforma here. Uh, so we have erosion like this on a very regular basis, especially if you have a hard winter or if you have a hard summer with uh, storms and whatnot. That will erode. So that doesn't, but, but it, it was like another three feet out. Now, Cape Brown was found here in the water. I was saying about in this area. Now, the reason for that, even though we're only, you know, three inches of water, a body that falls in this area, even in just this little bit of water, will float by the current down. So I think it's reasonable to say that once she fell off the cliff and fell down into here, uh, the water may have been a little higher and she could have been carried downstream about now, the weapon that was used was a 22 caliber gun. We don't know if it was a 22 long gun, like the one we used just recently in the experiment and the death of Brian McGarry, um, <clears throat> uh, or handgun. But in either account, the 22 is a very, it's the lowest caliber fatal projectile. Carnell was shot in the back of the head twice, well, in the back twice, once in the neck with a downward trajectory that I think went into his chest. Um, would have been maybe fatal, but not immediately incapacitating. That's why the second shot was directly to the back of his head, 
which fully and completely incapacitated him and he was deceased with no purposeful movement. Kate Brown was also shot in the back of the head and died of a single gunshot wound and she was found in that location that I just mentioned to you. Uh, like I said, a 22 is not a loud weapon. Um, and from 15 feet away to 50 feet away, and the further you get away from a 22 being fired, the less noticeable it is. Especially down here in the Rocky River Metro Parks, where we have the sounds. Of course, after a good rain, we'll have the sounds of babbling water. We'll have people out here fishing, people eating lunch right there in that parking lot joggers, bikers, uh, and when the water's a little higher, canoers up and down this creek. But nobody saw a thing. Nobody heard a thing. And it's been three years. Right over here is uh, an access road to get out of the park and into the city. So let's get in the car, take that road, and see if or how long it'll take us to get away. And you can fast forward this if you want to keep it running or cut it. Here, up the road, this little access road. Only people that know about this road, people that live here. It's a little bumpy road that goes up and behind Fairview Hospital, where I was born. In the year of 1970, Back when computers were run by little hamsters in a wheel. We didn't have cellular telephones, but we did have a lime green landline with a 300 foot green spiral cord. And to dial the phone, you have to go boop, boop, so good. So, at the top of this hill, boom, we are now in Cleveland, Ohio. We're no longer in the Metro Parks make a little drive up here right here's Fairview Hospital not much traffic boom go right here if you take a right you disappear uh, matter of fact we will take a right so if you take a right here you are now no longer in Fairview Park you're no longer in the Metro Parks you're in West Park And this is a main thoroughfare. And this is the important part right here. Because this road, if you take it right, you can go to the airport and get into all kinds of anonymous traffic. Or you can take a left and go toward the Lake Erie and cut through all the suburbs. Um, and uh, so as you can see, there's a lot of... So one of the and i hope you enjoyed that i know you probably would want to see the video of it we're going to post the video of that walkthrough on the backlink to the show and then you'll also be able to find it on the evidence room youtube page if you want to look at it there um these are not video podcasts sorry um we like the audio only and i think you guys do too because you know I think, uh, like most people, we like to put a podcast on while we're working, while we're mowing the lawn, while we're doing the laundry, cooking dinner, right? Mm -hmm. 
who's got time to watch a video while you're while you're working around the house so uh, we like the audio only and um, so um, that being said we still have a motive on this case um, there's a lot of different theories uh, the one theory is it could have been a former lover of Kate's a former lover of Carnell's uh, so it could be a man or a woman right um, they were both actively dating on dating sites at the time. You have to remember, this is before the pandemic. This is, you know, June of 2019. This is where, you know, these are young single people, you know, dating on Tinder and whatever, you know, um, having good times and bad times, you know. So who knows? Um, but there was a, a, been a, long, a big investigation about both the people that Carnell was dating or interested, or former daters, and same thing with Kate, and they found nothing. So then the other thing is, okay, if it's not something like that, if it's not a love situation, a, a scorned lover, um, maybe it's a bad business deal. We mm-hmm. People have been looking at that. Um, Carnell had a, um, a charity uh, uh, called Helping Hands, where he helped you know unfortunate um, children. I don't see anybody who's going to try to, you know, knock you off for helping kids, you know. But these people weren't doing big business deals. There's no shady deals. There's no money laundering. There's no drugs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. These are just regular folks. So then it started to think, could it just be a random hate crime? I mean, Carnell is black. Kate is white. Megan, what do you think about that? What's the likelihood of just somebody in 2019 seeing a black man and a white woman sitting on a park bench on a beautiful day and that gets them so angry that they just shoot them in the back of the head? What do you think about that? I mean, it's something that we see across the country all the time. I mean, we're seeing it in politics, government, small communities. I mean, because that racism is not gone for everybody. So there are people who still feel that way, that hatred towards people who are different than them. Um, So it definitely could have just been some random passerby that, you know, saw this as an opportunity and took it. Um, I I would hate to think that that's true, but we have to Mm -hmm. keep that on the table. One of the other theories that um, I was looking at on this case is possibly a gang initiation for killing an innocent mm-hmm. as induction into a gang. And the sad, sad truth of, you know, gangs, not here just in Cleveland, but all across the country, possibly even all across the world, one of the ways you get into a gang like that is you have to commit a horrible crime so that you're not an innocent person. Mm-hmm. Because if you're an innocent person, you've done nothing wrong, you're not safe to have as a gang member. Right. They need something on you. They need to see that you have... Um, uh, that means of that drive to do whatever you are told to do to be able to fit in with those groups of people. Right. And be dirty. Mm-hmm. You, you, they, because they don't want... You know, because if you're clean, you can, just, you can just dump on them and bolt. That's not what it's all about. Any kind of those gangs, whether it's uh, sophisticated gangs... You know, like the Illuminati <laughs> or uh, a just a, a street gang. You know, they, they want you um, to be conflicted in mm-hmm. the gang. So they got something against you. Um, so then we look at that and we look at, well, what kind of gangs are out there? Um, 
and 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 if this was planned, how did they get in and how did they get out, and how come nobody's heard anything about it? In you know, it's been going on six years, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just uh, five years. It's just tragic. But um, uh, we've got a couple more clips that we're going to play for you um, with regard to um, the. Um, the uh, Brown uh, Sledge investigation. But uh, again, keep it marked on your calendars. Uh, we're going to be doing a, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, filming that episode for airing on Netflix. And uh, you know, hopefully everybody will tune into that. And let's all try to get together and find out who killed Kate Brown and Carnell Sledge. And uh, hopefully we can bring that to a resolution sometime in the near future. Okay, switching gears a little bit to some more topical information, more topical crime, true crime cases. Uh, The Steve Smith case has been in the news. Steve Smith is uh, that 19-year-old young man who was found dead uh, in the middle of the road in South Carolina in the low country, as they call it, Mm -hmm. that has a connection to the Alex Murdoch case. You remember Alex Murdaugh, he was that lawyer from South Carolina that was recently convicted of killing his uh, wife and son in open court, uh, you know, uh, in court down South Carolina. It was all over the news. Uh, So now uh, Steve Smith, uh, a 19-year-old who went to school with one of the kids, was found dead. Very interesting case. Uh, And we're going to play for you now my recent appearance, if you need more of Scott Roeder uh, talking on the podcast, you can go over to um, uh, True Crime Daily with Tony Bruschi. And here is my latest episode. You can hear me there every Thursday. Uh, so mark it in your podcast books. And we're going to play that for you now. I hope you enjoy it. This is the Hidden Killers Podcast. This is the Hidden Killers Podcast with Tony Bruschi. We are talking with Scott Roeder of Evidence Room, and we are talking about the case of Stephen, Stephen Smith. Is Scott has now had a chance to take a, a more in-depth look as someone who deals with forensic evidence for a living uh, at the autopsies of Stephen Smith. And I want to just throw it to you. Get your input. Get your thoughts on the various uh, documents that exist on this from the original autopsy to the original reports to the uh, now uh, new autopsy uh, that was uh, taken not that long ago of the body of Stephen Smith when it was exhumed. Scott, what have you been finding? Well, I find it very interesting. The, uh, I believe it's the, um, the county coroner at that time in 2015 where Stephen Smith's body was recovered uh, in the road uh, the coroner at that time, who is now a funeral director in that area of Charleston, South Carolina, was a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Uh, Ernie Washington. Mm-hmm. And he determined at the scene that it looked like Stephen Smith had been shot with a gun. He was a, a gunshot. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the sheriff and the first responder uh, on the scene both indicated in their official reports that there was no debris uh, as if a car uh, had crashed into something. Uh, There was no uh, skid marks. There was actually no evidence whatsoever of any kind of an automobile-related accident. And then uh, the actual autopsy was performed by um, a 
different county, and, and this is going to be a local issue because certain counties uh, uh, have jurisdiction, right? So it could be the jurisdiction where uh, Stephen Smith lived versus the jurisdiction where he was found deceased. And, and we'll, it depends on you know each county who gets the authority to do the official autopsy and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, a doctor, Aaron Prezell, I believe that's how you pronounce it, was the medical examiner at the time and who did the official autopsy. And she came to the conclusion that uh, uh, Stephen Smith had died from a hit and run car accident uh, based upon possibly information provided to her. Now, I find that extremely suspect uh, in that you could have a qualified coroner respond to the scene uh, and determine this is a gunshot wound mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like the body was dumped there on the road versus uh, somebody doing the actual autopsy and have a totally different conclusion uh, of a hit on car accident with no evidence of that. So I, I'm not quite sure what that doctor saw when uh, she performed that autopsy, but I think that that, that is going to be under close examination uh, going forward because uh, I don't know how you could mistake a gunshot wound for a car accident, Tony. How often do we see conflicting reports on things like this? Well, not that often. Oh, I mean, you see conflicting reports because, you know, listen, educated doctors can disagree. Mm -hmm. Just like educated experts can disagree as to uh, in interpreting the same facts, right? Sure. Uh, but usually the disagreement is about an angle of a bullet or uh, angle of impact or things like that. But for two qualified medical doctors to look at the same body and, and have the same information and come to totally opposite conclusions, you know, I mean, we're really talking oranges and apples here, not different shades of, of apples. <laughs> uh, it's just so out of this world to have this kind of a disconnect uh, between two doctors, presumably looking at the same uh, type of medical evidence. It's uh, very rare, Tony. I think it, it's very yeah, rare. I mean, it, 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 to it, answer it, your question. It, it, and how does one misconstrue a gunshot wound with a head injury? I mean, it, I could, as a layman, I could see me doing that, just looking at it, going, "Oh, wow, look at that big gash in the person's head," and there's nothing else in it. I guess I could probably guess gunshot wound, but I could see. It could also be, you know, an injury of slamming one's head into pavement or something. Uh, and, and but that's me because no, I don't I don't do that for a living, so I could screw that up. But these yeah. are people where this is their job. So how do we go from initially it's a gunshot wound to it's uh, just a head injury uh, to it's a hit and run, but there's no evidence of hit and run? How do we have so many uh, totally opposing views? or you know opinions on this because i can't it's hard to say fact when everyone has a different opinion it's different opinions on this from the experts who were charged with determining this individual's cause of death initially yeah uh, tony i mean you're setting me up here uh for uh 
I think, you know, a conclusion that we're all uh, looking at, right? Uh, we're all smart people. Everybody out there in the world who has their head screwed on their shoulders can look at basic common sense. Uh, to answer your first question, how can you determine uh, a, a gunshot wound to the head versus an impact? Uh, well, very clearly, okay, let's get into the weeds of it a little bit. Um, now, if you have a gunshot wound to the head of, say, a shotgun, that is going to have a blast radius of impact zone that is going to be very large, okay? Uh, and uh, I've seen lots of, uh, you know, uh, car accident victims with massive head trauma, people that have fallen from uh, bucket trucks as electricians down 200 feet and impacted the ground. Uh, you, you, the, the appearance of a blunt force, uh, maybe to a shotgun, you could possibly say there could be some appearances that are similar with the amount of skull that's gone and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll give you an example. I looked at a case down in Atlanta, Georgia, where this guy was walking down the highway and was hit in a dark road uh, and was hit by accident, a true accidental hit, yeah. and uh, not really run, but a hit accident. And he, he was impacted at 35 miles an hour from behind. And not only was his head, uh, you know, pulverized with a massive uh, fracture on the back of his head, but his leg was amputated during the impact. Mm -hmm. His shoes were 50 feet away. His pants were thrown off of his body. Uh, he had a, a massive uh, road rash burns on his body. And anybody out there has ever ridden a motorcycle? I, I got. I, I laid down my motorcycle at 25 miles an hour in 2002 on a wet road in the metro parks, and I was wearing shorts. I laid down at 25 miles. I had road rash on my left side from my knee up to my butt for about six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's at 25 miles an hour when I laid down kind of gently, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't see the difference, you know, it's so apparent to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, I don't want to say people are, you know, corrupted or incompetent, possibly, uh, you know, something well, slipped through the cracks, uh, you know, just to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm not the claiming anybody did anything nefarious, but I think that there's questions that need to be answered as to why the disparity. I think we need to talk to Ernie, Dr. Ernie Washington, and we need to talk to Dr. Aaron Perstow and look at their notes from their observation of Stephen Smith and, um, you know, why the disconnect? I think those autopsy photographs, those crime scene photographs, those sheriff notes, those should be made public. Um, and uh, they should be made public probably as part of the investigation, the criminal investigation that SLED's now doing. And I, I applaud SLED for doing that. And they've come out and made a statement dedicating, you know, truth to the family. But um, I think uh, at this point, all indications is this is a homicide. This is not a hit and run car accident. And, uh, and, and those doctors need to, um, you know, compare some notes uh, to the, benefit of truth and justice and you know uh, see where the disconnection is here tony i'm i'm baffled by by how far apart they are what's interesting i mean in, in cases like this uh incompetency 
uh, can sometimes masquerade itself as some sort of a cover-up, and cover-up can sometimes also masquerade itself as incompetency. Uh, it, you know, it, it, but the thing is, the determination is it's one of the two. It, I mean, it, it has to be one of the two because there's no way, there's no other answer. Uh, if, if to have the, this sort of ruling on it initially, it is good now that they're taking a look at this in a totally different way. Uh, but it is mm -hmm. baffling as to how initially that happened. And I think there needs to be some answers. Some people need to be held accountable as to why they made those rulings yeah. initially. And just, we need to figure that out. And if there was some sort of... And if you want to speculate yeah. a little bit, Tommy, yeah. 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 Let's, let's get into the realm of just slightly speculation, because this investigation is uh, being launched now as a result of the investigation that Sled did into Alex Murdoch's murder of his son and his wife. Which I'd still love uh, to know how that happened. Very close by. But and well, what, and what I, is the I connection? That's the question. What I read, what I read from SLED uh, in their public release statement, they said that they learned new information throughout the course of their investigation into uh, uh, the Patriarch Murdoch, yep. into his son and his wife's death. They learned something from that investigation that pointed them toward the Stephen Smith uh, death case mm -hmm. and that direct one directly related to the other and then that inquiry led to uh, that body being exhumed and the autopsy has already been performed just last week as an independent private medical examiner I don't know who that is um, but there's a lot of tremendous private medical examiners out there that I work with regularly as part of my cases and, uh, and, and and this person will find the truth. And, and like I said, two weeks ago, if you remember, what that new autopsy is going to be looking for is fractures on other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and what other injuries can they find that might point to a, um, a car accident uh, or some type of, uh, uh, you know, related to that? And if they only find uh, an injury to the back of the head, say only, um, I don't know, uh, a uh, eighth of an inch uh, diameter crater hole in the back of the head or somewhere in the skull, uh, and no injuries anywhere else on the body to the overall skeleton, uh, I, I think then we've got a, a, a new investigation as to who shot Stephen Smith. And with that being said, we're saying shot Stephen Smith. Has there, been, has there been evidence of, I mean, other than the observation of the this looking like a gunshot wound, do we have any way of confirming that it was a gunshot wound? Well, I mean, yeah, you can. I mean, matter of fact, what I'm doing today when we get off the phone is I have uh, two uh, gel skeleton uh, heads mm -hmm. that are filled with uh, simulated brain and blood and, and uh, human musculature. And I'm going to be firing into the back of that skull with a gun and ammunition on another case because I'm trying to test mm -hmm. how bullets travel through the head, right, yeah. uh, in this, on this uh, examination I'm doing for a different matter. Uh, what they could simply do is they could take, a, you know, a 3D model or a picture of the skull of Stephen Smith from the autopsy. Uh, measure it, model it in 3D, and then get do exactly what I'm doing, and and take a, a gun uh, and several of these skulls and shoot it 
and see if you can make that same fracture mm -hmm. in the skull of Stephen Smith. And if you can match it up, well, now you have uh, a very reasonable scientific probability that he was shot with a gun. And then there comes the next step. Now we're looking at a homicide by gunfire. Uh, and, uh, you know, you got to start weeding down the information logically. And you got to do your homework. You can't just say, oh, it looks like a bullet hole. Yeah. Well, you got to do some testing to see, well, what kind of gun would make that bullet hole and under what conditions? It'll be very interesting to see how this develops. I know they have two persons of interest at this point. Neither of them are Murdoch. I want to say that. Uh, but uh, it will sure. be uh, very interesting to see uh, how this continues to uh, evolve. Because I'm actually I'm quite surprised how far it's gotten uh, with the, some fire being put behind it. And, and the investigation actually taking place. I think we are going to end up here with someone actually being charged, uh, I would guess, within the next six months. Well, it's very interesting, and, and, and I want to, you know, just uh, on a human level, you know, give our give my personal thoughts and prayers to um, Stephen Smith's mother. Um, you know, this poor woman uh, uh, lost her son in a tragic way and seemingly has been, you know, kind of shuffled around as not an important player in this, in this situation, I think. You know, all sympathies and uh, anything that people can do out there to support her, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, we should all try to help, uh, just even if it's just, you know, our good wishes uh, to uh, for justice. And, and this poor woman has, uh, you know, gone without justice and without answers. And even if it was an accident, we need to find out conclusively, one way or the other, so that Stevenson's mother can find some peace. This is an examination of the hidden human condition. This is the Hidden Killers Podcast. The Hidden Killers Podcast. With Tony Bruschi. Scott Rutter of Evidence Room, thank you so much for joining us in your podcast, Crime Scene Time Machine. What's going on over there? Well, over at Crime Scene Time Machine uh, podcast on uh, Spotify and soon coming to all platforms, uh, we put out a real light episode uh, this past week after handling Bobby Kennedy's assassination and the Jeffrey Epstein murder. Uh, we put out a fun podcast this week just for easy listening about the movie A Few Good Men. We break down the crime inside the movie A Few Good Men, have a few laughs, and uh, learn a little bit about trial law uh, circa 1995. Check that out. I'm Tony Bruschi. Be sure to press subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Don't miss any of our breaking updates and discussions on the cases we're following for you right here. Stay with us. Okay, so that was um, uh, my contribution to the Tony Bruschi Show, True Crime Daily. You can hear it there uh, every Thursday, I think, and then you um, uh, uh, should enjoy that. So, yeah, Megan and I, we were just talking, you know, and we're thinking, you know, what if there are rumors out there that Stephen Smith was canoodling with um, some of these uh, characters? I really didn't know what that meant. But canoodling, apparently, that's uh, to show public affection. Mm -hmm. It's kind of getting busy. Right. And so some of the rumors are that Buster and Stephen were having something on the side. So some rumors were going around that there was some relations happening between Buster and Steven and this information um, could have possibly led to something trying to be covered up between the Murdaws and Steven Smith 
and not wanting it to be known to the public and taking him out in an easy way by just leaving him on the side of the road basically to die. Yes, yeah, terrible. Um, and we must say that Buster came out with a statement, um, which is that Buster made an unprecedented move and brought out a public statement um, saying he denies any wrongdoing with the Stephen Smith case, uh, Stephen Smith murder, and that the rumors are totally unfounded. So that's what he says. But those rumors do exist. And one thing we know with the Murdochs is there's a lot of smoke there. And where there's smoke... There's always fire. Right. Uh, so let's wrap it up on a, on a happy note here at Crime Scene Time Machine. We're always you know, talking about murder and stuff, but um, our goal here is also to um, make everybody happy, uh, smile, give yourself a little chance to you know, uh, breathe and just remember that um, you know, uh, do things to enjoy yourself. Like last night I went uh, to go see Adam Sandler with my daughter at the queue. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, the Sandman is really funny. And the one thing that he always reminds me is that, um, you know, don't take life so seriously. It's okay to be silly. And uh, last night was a really good silly time. And, um, you know, that's what life is. You know, just a bunch of moments where we're either standing, sitting, or laying down, either doing something or doing nothing at all. Uh, either way, enjoy the now. Because now is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. I've been your host, Scott Roeder. This is Megan. And we love you, planet Earth. Talk to you soon. See you next week. Damn it, Sarah.